Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 79. It's titled Lump Sums and Life Insurance. In the early 1990s, I was living with LaPrille and I. We just had our oldest son, and we were living in Dayton, Ohio, and I was working in corporate finance. I worked for a captive leasing company that leased computers, ATMs, and other point-of-sale equipment. It was NCR, was the company that later got bought out by AT&T. And so I worked for AT&T Capital Corporation. So pretty much corporate finance. I had my undergraduate in, in finance. My graduate degree was in finance. But I was by no means any type of investment advisor, financial planner. Still, I had a friend ask me to meet with a recently widowed woman whose husband had died unexpectedly. She was in her 30s, and and this friend was worried about some of the financial decisions this woman was going to make with her life insurance. And so her husband had died. Suddenly, she received about $500,000 in life insurance. A lump sum. Now, at the time, this was a revelation to me. I did not realize that life insurance, at least in the U.S., when you when you receive a payout, it's tax free. So she literally had five hundred thousand dollars. Where before they had had been, they had a fair amount of debt. Had been living probably somewhat paycheck to paycheck. And and I went in a little trepidatious. I, I just. I hadn't really known anyone whose whose spouse had passed away. They had three or four children, sort of under 10, and, and I think they had a couple of teenagers. And so I went in a little trepidatious, and, and I met with her and just was kind of wanted to see what, basically how was she going to invest this $500,000 in order to sustain to, to meet their lifestyle and to meet their the expenses of their children, etc. And as I got to to speaking with her, and my friend was with me, it became pretty clear that she had very much made up her mind what she was going to do with these life insurance proceeds. She was first going to pay off their debts, and and second, she was going to buy a house, and, and not just any house. She was going to buy about a $300,000 home and pay cash for it. And I had just we had just moved into our first house, spent most of that that summer we paid $70,000 for this house built in 1940 and spent most of the summer working on it and trying to paint, etc. So I mean, <laughs> $300,000 house. That seemed like a lot of money to me 
as my, you know, in my late 20s. And so I talked with her and and there was no there was no dissuading her. She her viewpoint was here's a chance for a clean break. I can be completely out of debt. We can live in a really really nice home. My kids are having a, a tough time. We just need a fresh start in a brand new house. And that's what I'm going to do. And I'll worry about figuring out how I'm going to live. I mean, once I, I have the house, so I know I don't have a mortgage and I'll make enough of my job to pay taxes and we'll live from there. And that, that was her decision. And I, as I thought about that, <laughs> there wasn't anything I could say. It says, okay, I, I'm not going to dissuade you from that. And so it, it brings up the question is, you know, what do we do with unexpected lump sum payments because what I've and I've seen this situation before when when individuals receive a lump sum they often want to spend at least a portion of it and I've come to believe that that's actually a good thing when when my father-in-law passed away my my mother-in-law went and and did some things on her home that she'd been meaning to do for years new curtains I, I don't remember all what but sometimes when you receive a lump sum, you just have to spend a portion of it. Now, hopefully not 80% of it on a new house. And I'm not sure how this story turned out for this woman. I assume they were fine. They enjoyed their house and they, they had a, a wonderful life. But the question comes up with what do we do with the lump sum? Yeah, we're going to put some, oh, to perhaps spend something, go on a trip, buy a car. I mean, it depends on how big the lump sum is. I, I recently looked at a survey that they did in Germany in 2000 where they, they had, asked, I think the government ran the survey, it was just asking people, if you received over, more than $1,000 unexpectedly in Deutsche Marks, so Deutsche Mark, before they adopted the euro, how would you spend it? And only about 30% would put it into savings. Most of the people, they'd spend it on vacation, they would pay down debt, they would would buy something for their home, do a remodel, buy just regular expenses. Now, 1,000 Deutschmark in today's dollars, that'd be, well, the, the time the exchange rate was two to one, so $2,000. So not, not a ton of money, but an unexpected large sum. So it's normal to want to spend something. But then I've gotten this question a lot from listeners regarding what do you do when in terms of investing a lump sum and an unexpected or a large lump sum maybe even expected in our case i sold my firm to my partners and every december i get a lump sum payment and then i have to decide what to do with it because one of the big question is is it better to invest it all at once, so boom, you invest a lump sum, or is it better to dollar cost average, where you periodically, I'd say monthly or quarterly, invest a portion of those funds? Now, this is a question that I often ran into as an institutional investment advisor, because we worked with mostly not-for-profits who were doing fundraising, and occasionally they would get a very, very large gift as a percent of their endowment, and the board would be faced with the decision. 
Should we invest this lump sum all at once? We have our investment policy. We have our target allocation. Should we put it all in at once or should we dollar cost average and put it in over time? Now, most of the academic studies you look at say it is better to invest it all at once, that you you just put it in, you're buy and hold, you put it in with your investment policy, and and, and that's what you do. That's what the rational investor will do. And why is that? Well, because markets, stock markets over time tend to go up. And so the idea is if, if, if your dollar cost averaging in and the market continues to go up, you're continuing to buy stocks at higher and higher prices. And so your performance will be lower dollar cost averaging than it will if you do a, a lump sum payment or just buy it all at once. Now, if the market is trending down, dollar cost averaging in that case works. But generally speaking, the market is trending up. And then I read a paper by Moshe Milewski, and I've mentioned him before. He, he'd write some really interesting papers. And Stephen Posner, it's called A Continuous Time Reexamination of the Inefficiency of Dollar Cost Average. So you know where their, their, their bias or their conclusion is that dollar cost average is inefficient, as, as I discussed, and I gave you the simple reason why, because markets go up. But they, they did the same thing, and, but they had this third category where they did they used a technique highly mathematical called Brownian bridges. And I, I, I read the paper. There was a lot of math. And you, you know, as I've mentioned before when it comes to academic papers, I, I read the beginning, I read, I skim through the middle, and I read the conclusion and I skip most of the math because I don't understand it. Now, that, that means i got to put a lot of faith in whoever wrote the paper, which is why I tend to read authors that, that seem like they have a lot of credibility. But they concluded that if the market is going to stay the same, that it's better to dollar cost average in. And so, if, and, and in fact, the higher the volatility of the market, and at the end of the period, it's, it's at the same point at the beginning then dollar cost averaging is better. And they, they use these Brownian bridges to, to, to figure that out. I, maybe some of you can understand it. I know Alex. Alex, a listener in Thailand. He's got a PhD in mathematics. He probably could understand this paper. I'll link to it in the show notes. And, but the bottom line is dollar cost averaging mathematically suggests you shouldn't do it when you have a lump sum. Yet I've seen... With these endowments and foundations, they they had a really hard time doing that because yes, we have the rational person that says, yeah, the numbers say don't dollar cost average, put it all in at once. But we have the emotional investor, and think about a board of an endowment that gets this money from a donor. Oftentimes, the donor is still alive, and their biggest fear is they're going to put the money in and the market's going to fall 30% and they're going to lose 30% of this donor money and they're going to be absolutely embarrassed. We have no idea whether what's going to happen, but that is their fear. And it's a legitimate fear. And so most of the time, even though the numbers said put it all in at once, the board would make the decision to dollar cost average in 
because the regret, the, 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 the fear of regret of making a mistake and losing the money and being embarrassed on behalf of the institution and the donor overrided any type of financial argument. We make a lot of decisions that, we, that are not optimal from a rational perspective. And one of the things I've seen with lump sums, now with an institution, they had an investment policy, they had a target allocation, and, and they weren't sitting there trading or, or seeing, I mean, they see the balances in the report, but they didn't have to invest it themselves. As an individual, when you receive a lump sum payment, or every December when I receive it, suddenly, if you're going to invest it according to your target allocation, your trades, the size of your trades are a lot bigger. And by trading, I'm not talking about daily trade. I'm just saying when you go out and you invest it and you go buy an ETF or an index fund or an active mutual fund, it's a lot of dollars that suddenly are going in. And, and it's been my experience, there is a, a psychological hurdle. It just takes time to get used to dealing with larger dollars and seeing the volatility of larger dollars from day to day. And so I can tell you, I don't invest lump sums all at once. I average in over time as I get comfortable with seeing those bigger dollars, seeing the bigger trades, seeing the day-to-day volatility, and, and that's how I handle it, irrespective of what the numbers say, because I have to live with myself, I have to deal with the emotions, and doing it little by little makes it easier for me to be a better, more disciplined, long-term investor. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. 
What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. So let's switch gears. And so that, that's what to do with when you receive a lump sum payment. But I often get asked, how much life insurance should you have? And what type of life insurance should you buy? Back in college, as I mentioned, I studied finance. And I remember one student presentation. I don't even remember what the class was. I know it was not a class on financial planning. And it was not a class on life insurance. But there was a student that was going, giving a presentation on life insurance. And I thought, this is really, really odd because it has nothing to do with the class. And I don't even want, no, remember what the class was about. All I remember from his presentation is this phrase, buy term and invest a difference. And, and it was, he was, a, as a college student, was an insurance agent. And 20-year-old kid sells insurance for this company called A.L. Williams, and they were an insurance company that encouraged people to buy term insurance. So term insurance is just plain vanilla life insurance. You pay a premium on a quarterly or annual basis over for, a, say, a 10 or 20-year period, and the company promises to pay you a set death benefit if you, you die. There can not be any more simpler insurance. And, and the thesis was you just buy term, the premiums are inexpensive, relatively inexpensive compared to other more complicated insurance, and then you handle the investing of your additional money, the money you save in premiums by not buying, let's say, a whole life policy or a universal index life. You can do better investing on your own. That really resonated with me. That makes sense to me. And so I've always had term life insurance. We have about a a million dollars in life insurance. I bought it 15 years ago. And, and the other thing I remember from the presentation is you don't need life insurance the rest of your life. You need it during your prime income earning years. And eventually, hopefully you'll have enough savings and investment that you don't need life insurance when you're in, in your late 50s or 60s. Now that, that This was sort of conventional and it's made sense to me. And so I always swore off any type of complicated policies. In terms of how much life insurance to have, the idea was you needed to replace your income. If, if I was the primary bread earner, then if I died, I would want enough life insurance to take care of my kids and, and to help out LaPrille. And, and that's sort of the logic I use. So with a million dollars, if we assume we could earn 4 to 5%, that would be 4000 to 50000 Per year, which is a long-winded way of saying I was woefully underinsured as I think about it going back. And it just it would not have been enough. And so that's one of the things you have to think about is, you know, what is what are you gonna earn? What can you earn when you receive this tax-free death benefit to take care of your 
your dependents or your family, etc. And life insurance, term life insurance, is still relatively inexpensive. It where yeah, it it would. So I think our premium is we pay about $350 per year for $500,000. So rates are lower right now in terms of of insurance rates. So those premiums are probably higher just because insurance company can't earn as much money. But I would, and I'm I'm not a financial planner, but I would think most people would want at least a million to $2 million worth of life insurance. You're looking for income replacement. So my view, that was my view on, on life insurance and for, for many years. And yet I've gotten questions from listeners regarding other type of life insurance policies, such as whole life, such as index universal life. And, and it's not, I'm not an insurance expert. And, and my view has always been separate out your investing from your insurance because insurance companies, they're set up very simply. They have the asset side of their balance sheet, which consists of their primarily their investment portfolio. And then they have the liability side of their balance sheet, which are their, their promised benefits to policyholders. And then also on that side of the balance sheet, they have what's called the surplus. So on the left, you have the assets. On the right, you have the liabilities and the surplus. And the surplus is the, the value of the assets above and beyond the the liabilities and the surplus serves as a buffer in case the insurance company doesn't charge enough premiums, people live much longer than they they than they expected, or just something to protect the policyholders. Two types of insurance companies: there's mutual insurance mutual insurance companies that are owned by the shareholders, and so the profits go to the shareholders, the owners. Of, of the policy, the policyholders, they get the profits. For-profit insurance companies, the profits go ultimately to the shareholders that own the stock, and the stock falls under the surplus. How does an insurance company make money? Well, if you look at their income statement, the, the primary revenue is, is premiums that they receive, and then the income they receive on their investments, and to some extent they realize gains, that's all falls under income. Their expenses are benefits that they pay out. As people die, they pay out the benefits. Obviously, they, they have to pay the, their workers. They pay commissions. And whatever is left over after expenses, their office expenses, that's their profit. Now, man, that's just the, the simple business of insurance. And so when I was down in, at FinCon a few weeks ago, I spoke with Joshua Sheets, who is host the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. And and Joshua is one of the smartest financial planners. So I know he's got all types of credentials and he he is just really, really good when it comes to these technical financial planning concepts. And I said, Joshua, what do you think about whole life policies or universal index life policies? What's your view on insurance? And Joshua for many years worked for Northwestern insurance, a mutual insurance company. And he, his response was, you first have to consider safety. In other words, when you buy an insurance policy, I mean, you're, you're, you want to go with the safest company, which makes sense to me. Ideally, a mutual insurance company where the policyholders own the company. And But he didn't say just by term. He said, 
you can use insurance if you think safety first. You know, there is the potential to earn 4 to 5% on a whole life policy. And, and the reason why is because what you have to consider is, you know, is the insurance company a better investor than the individual? And it depends. It depends on the individual. But, you know, so a firm like Northwestern Mutual Life, they have a huge investment team and they can invest in asset classes that oftentimes individuals can't, such as big private real estate deals, big office product or pro- office buildings that became on the market during the financial crisis. And Northwestern Mutual is able to buy some of those. And so there are some areas in alternative investments that insurance companies, given their balance sheet, given their superior credit ratings, can take advantage and then pay out policyholders 4 to 5% on their whole life policies. And, and so that, that kind of made sense to me. Yeah, maybe there is a time where if you think safety first, think low return, this is really a kind of a bond replacement. There are individuals that just don't want to deal with it, and there's a way to do that. Now, I got a an email recently from from Ben, who's a pilot, and he's bought a whole life policy, and he's and he he studied it out, he looked in detail, and and it was a right fit for him because he was maxing out his four hundred one k, is maxing out his IRA, and he was high income earner, and that's what he he did. But if you buy these type of policies, you have to go in with the attitude that you're going to hold it for a long time. This is not a liquid investment. This is, this is 10, 20 years, and you got to really, really dig in and understand. And, and I, I had a board member once on a college that said, if I don't understand it and I can't explain it to a fellow board member, I don't want to invest it. And I think insurance, very much the same way. You need to understand what you're buying. And if you don't understand it, then don't buy it. Now, there's another insurance policy called Universal Index Life. I mentioned Bridget was a listener that asked me to look at it. I've read books on it. I've talked to people about it. In this case, this is a policy where you, you pay, you, got, you know, start out with the life insurance. All these complex life insurance have a life insurance component. And, and you have to look at it that way. Life insurance first. Second, if it's complex, you look at it long-term investment. With whole life, they're promising sort of your cash value over time is is being accumulating at four to five percent a year. With index universal life, that cash value varies to based on what the stock market does. There, you could tied to a specific index, and so there's a floor. I mean, you get, there's a guaranteed return, generally speaking, and but then you get the upside in the market up to a certain point. So there's a cap. So you might get any appreciation in the stock market up to, say, 12 or 13%. If the market goes above that, you don't get that. You don't get the dividends. You just, you just get this. And, and how do insurance companies thinking about a business accomplish that? They go out into the options market and they buy options on the, the S&P 500, if that's the index. And so they structure it, so they're buying derivatives, and then they're giving you this upside. And, and I've talked to, to reps that have looked at it in detail, and they've torn it apart, and they think you know, it's possible to earn 6 to 7% a year doing this. 
And, you know, I was pretty kind of negative. Why would anybody do that, right, when they could just buy term and invest the difference on their own? And I remember talking to, to one individual who's a financial planner and, and does deal with index universal lives, and he says, because not everybody can do that. Not everybody wants to invest. Nobody, they can't necessarily go out and buy options. They don't want anything to do with that. And for some individuals, these complex policies make sense because they can earn 6 to 7% over the long term, but they have to keep in mind that they're keeping it pretty much for the rest of your life because there, there are provisions that you can borrow against the policy in your retirement years. And I'm not going to get into the complexities of it, but as I've read books about it and I've looked at it, you know, I'm still not going to go buy one, at least because I'd rather buy term and invest the difference. But I'm not so naive to say nobody should ever own these types of policies. What I think individuals should do is only own them if they understand them, spend a great deal of time studying them out, like like Ben did, the pilot. I mean, he spent hours and hours, as I understand, looking at it, tearing apart, understanding you know what the commission is, you know what are the downside, but recognize that this, these are not high earning investments. Safety first life insurance first, and then a potential return of 4 to 5% if you go with a, a mutual insurance policy whole life, and maybe 6 to 7% with index universal life. And, and that's, that's sort of my view on, on life insurance. I had one other question on this topic that I got from Glenn. This, this was a while ago, and he asked, how should you treat if you have an expected inheritance. In other words, you, you know your, your parents or relative have wealth. They've indicated that it, it should be coming to you at some point. Now, how should that impact your, your planning in terms of financial planning in your life? And, and that, it's hard to give a specific answer to that. I think, because I don't know how sure that, that it is, right? My, my initial answer is don't plan on it. Maybe you'll have a falling out. Maybe your parents will live to be 150. And, I mean, that's being facetious, but perhaps they, they live. I got an email the other day from somebody whose mom is 104 and is now eating in to the principle of her investing. So my, my view is just don't assume it's going to happen and live your life the as if it's not going to happen. And then if it does, then you have this unexpected windfall and you can figure out, should you dollar cost average or do a lump sum and learn to the process of psychologically handling the these larger sums, which is why, in summary, I dollar cost average in. So I wish I could better better answer to that, but just don't plan on it. If it happens, consider it an unexpected windfall. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also You can sign up for my insider's guide. I'll email those show notes to you weekly and along with a summary article. Thank you for all those that have left reviews of the podcast. I, I very much appreciate that. And if you'd like to explore these topics in more detail, get more specific asset allocation guidance, you can get that at the Money for the Rest of Us hub. And you can get information for that, that membership site at moneyfortherestofushub.com. 
www.thinkandgrowthpodcast.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.